You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book, Song of Solomon. Here's Nate. Well, today we turn to Song of Solomon, chapter 5, beginning in verse 2, where she speaks and she says, I slept, but my heart was awake. Now, what's happening here in the text is that we are seemingly moving away from now the wedding scene. The couple has gone through, of course, the early days of courtship and engagement and investigation and now have passed through even the day of the wedding and the wedding feast itself. And now their relationship, although not quite fully mature, they've been married and they've been married for some time. What you see in verse 2 is that when Solomon speaks to his bride, he does not call her his bride. Not that they aren't married, but throughout the wedding ceremony, he referred to her as his bride over and over again. But now in this passage, he has moved off that terminology and refers to her in other endearing kind of ways. So it seems as if we are past now the wedding and enter into a very unique moment inside the Song of Solomon and inside the entirety of this song. The first words, verse 2, indicate to us that this is likely a dream. She says, I slept, but my heart was awake. In other words, her, her mind, her emotions, everything is turning, and she has this, what some would regard as a dream, or that these are activities or descriptions that are embedded in the daily reality of life between her and her husband, but in the anxiety of the night, she's actually dreaming about some of these things. So it's hard to say, I think, with personally, at least with any certainty, but it seems as if she's dreaming, and in her dream, there is the illustration of some distance between her and her husband. What we do know here is that we are shifting from the ecstasy of the wedding night to frustration that has entered into the marriage. Chapter 5 verse 1 is the center of the Song of Solomon in every way. Word count, the events of the book, the intensity of that moment. They're to be drunk with love, but Chapter 5, verse 2, where we pick up today, real life hits. The engagement and wedding are over with, and real life now begins. And some have said that this book is 20% conflict. And it helps us, of course, to remember that marriage is real work in a real world, not a honeymoon in paradise. Real work in the real world. And the reason, of course, for that is because both parties, the husband and the wife, are both sinners, saved by the grace of God, hopefully, but still both sinners. J.C. Ryle said it this way. He said, marriage is, after all, the union of two sinners and not two angels. Sometimes when people are dating or courting 
and they begin to fight with the person that they're in this relationship with, they begin to wonder, should I not be with them? Well, the reality is you're going to fight with someone for the rest of your life. And so you have to determine, is this the person that you want to go through the highs and the lows of life with? And so I think we would say everyone wants to enjoy quality relationships, but quality relationships are made, not stumbled into. And that's what we're going to see in this text today. This couple is going to endure conflict, be a little out of step together, but we're going to watch them revive their love for one another. And fortunately for us, we'll get an opportunity to observe how they did it. So she says, I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. Solomon said, for my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. She says, verse 3, I had put off my garment, how could I put it on? I had bathed my feet, how could I soil them? So right away, you notice that they are in different places when Solomon has to knock on the door and say, open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. He is the husband, yet he has to knock. That tells us that she has initiated the process of shutting the door. And why? Well, he's coming home late at night, we assume. He says, it's so late that my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. In other words, we would assume that what we're seeing is that Solomon had been working all day long. He comes home at the end of a very long day of work, so long that it's deep into the night. His hair is wet with the dew of the night. And he comes home knocking now on the door and speaking to her with terms of affection and love and apparently with an expectation about how things would go when he came home. He wasn't there to simply rest. He wanted a time of intimacy with his bride. She fires back with an excuse. I put off my garment. How could I put it on? I bathed my feet. How could I soil them? In other words, it's too late. I'm not interested. She shuts down his advances. You know, one of the things that a mature couple needs to learn how to handle is the reality of unmet expectations. Solomon clearly had his hopes up and clearly, at least at this moment, they were unmet. Now, this is a common occurrence inside of a marriage and a common reality when it comes to conflict between a husband and a wife unmet expectations. Sometimes, as in the context here, sexual desire or expectation that the other person does not in that moment reciprocate or just other desires that would sometimes come up or expectations that would come up. So preparing yourself for that conflict is altogether important for the married couple. I think some things that help is to put yourself in the other person's shoes. Had Solomon just been thinking about what his bride would be going through? There she is at home. She's been missing him all day long. He maybe has sent a messenger or something like that, but the day has grown long and finally she just gets to the point where she's tired of waiting and she goes to sleep. 
So to remember and to think, well, you know, I haven't been around. She, of course, is tired. And to have the grace of thinking about the other person, I think, would be helpful. And to realize for himself that he hadn't given her any time during the entirety of that day. But not only were there unmet expectations, but she was angry. Angry excuses. She says, I put off my garment. I had bathed my feet. She shuts down his advances. And again, these are excuses that she's giving. They're real excuses, but slightly trivial, but they're real. And, you know, you would almost imagine after reading about the wedding night of these two passionate lovers, you'd hardly imagine that she'd ever give an answer like this to the advances of Solomon. But there it is. I see in it something that's not entirely straightforward. She doesn't just say, you know, it's been a very long day, sweetheart. I love you so much, but I'm just very fatigued. And I'm wondering, could we take a rain check? No, instead of that, it's, well, I put off my garment and I've bathed my feet and there are excuses that she's making. Perhaps even there's a slightly punitive tone that is coming from the bride to the husband, punishing him by withholding the sexual relationship. She says in verse four, she says, my beloved put his hand to the latch and my heart was thrilled within me. Now, what that means is that Solomon, he reached out, put his hand on the latch, and the door was locked. She had actually locked the door, it appears. Eventually, she comes to a place, after refusing his initial advances, where she says, my heart was thrilled within me. Now, most people interpret this to mean that she had an awakened sexual desire for her husband. But some people point out that this phrase is used in other passages in the Bible, like Isaiah 16 and Jeremiah 31, to describe pity or compassion. That perhaps what happened is she heard the handle being jiggled. She knew that he was trying to get into the home or the bedroom, but the door was locked and eventually remorse and pity and compassion caught up with her and she went to open the door for her locked out husband. She says in verse five, I arose to open to my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. This tells us perhaps that when she finally, with that remorse in her heart, goes to open up the door to their bedroom, she puts her hand on the door and it's covered with this myrrh, with this liquid myrrh. Now, what does that mean? Likely, this was a sign from her husband. Uh, like a valentine or like rose petals or like lit candles. It was a gesture of romance for his bride. He's letting her know, I wasn't here just for a place to sleep. I was here for romance at the end of a very long day. Perhaps even it was Solomon's way of saying, look, I hear you. I hear that you don't want to have anything to do with me. I know that you're upset with me in that moment, but I want you to know that I love you anyhow in this moment. She says in verse six, I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. 
The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. They beat me. They bruised me. They took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. Now, what we have here is the journey of both Solomon and his bride from her perspective. First of all, she goes out of the room and she begins calling for Solomon and he gives no answer. It tells us perhaps that he went to be alone, believing the best about Solomon and thinking good of him. We would assume that he went away to be alone, to think and to pray. She goes out and she describes her experience. She says, the watchman found me. Now, We'd seen her in a previous dream, see the watchman. They basically ignored her in chapter three in that dream. But here they beat her. They bruised her. She says they took away my veil. This is part of the reason why so many people believe that this is a dream. Besides the fact that she said, while I slept, my heart was awake. But that you would never see the queen being beaten and bruised and her veil taken away. So it seems as if this is a fanciful dream. But in her dream, she's beaten and bruised by these watchmen. What does this indicate? Perhaps it indicates that she had fallen under conviction. Solomon went away to think. Solomon went away to pray, we might believe. She, in searching for Solomon, was wounded. Perhaps what we're seeing is that her conscience was wounded. Her heart was convicted. She came under the wounding ministry of the Holy Spirit and received conviction from God. And if that's the case, what we're seeing is that they both gave God space to operate in their own hearts. The reality is, is that you cannot change your spouse. You are not the Holy Spirit. That's not your role. The issue inside of us is our hearts. Our hearts are deceitfully wicked. Our hearts are prone to sin. Our hearts are prone to rebellion. And yes, there are best practices for marriage. And yes, there is wisdom that can be gained. There are different things that if I do this, then they might do that. But the reality is that at the end of the day, the problem, the big obstacle is the heart of man. It's the heart that needs change and only God we know can change the heart. Solomon gave God the opportunity to deal with him. The woman gave God the opportunity to deal with her and she was convicted. And I think as we'll see later in the text, Solomon himself was convicted as well. Note that had Solomon reacted with anger, had he lashed out, had he kicked the door down, had he become violent or visibly upset, he would have done harm to the relationship. You see, a lot of times when your expectations are not met, pride will kick in. You'll see everything that you're owed, but humility doesn't see what you're owed. Humility sees the other person and how difficult it might be to just even be married to you. Humility lowers the self, whereas pride, of course, exalts the self. She says in verse 8, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. In other words, I don't know where he is, but if you see him, tell him that I am sick with love. She's come back to her senses and she realizes this is the man I love. This is the man of my dreams. And I can't believe 
that I behaved that way toward him. So their love at this point is strained. They're out of sync with one another. What we're going to see in the rest of this Bible study is the reviving of their romantic love for one another. And by the grace of God, we get to observe this couple revive their love. Let's see how they do it. It begins with good friends in verse 9. They say to her, What is your beloved more than any other beloved? O most beautiful among women. What is your beloved more than any other beloved that you thus adjure us? So they want to know, what is your beloved more than another beloved? What's so special about your man? And when they ask that, it's very likely that the question isn't one from a negative posture. In other words, hey, what's the big deal about your man? But that they're actually trying to mine the heart of this woman to get her to begin to open up her mouth so that she might realize, my husband is a good man. I'm in a blessed position. I have a good spouse and a good marriage. So, Part of reviving love is, first of all, to have good friends in your life who will say this kind of thing to you, that will not say, run away when a marital conflict comes, and will not encourage you in yourself and your flesh and say, oh, how dare your spouse do that or do this. But instead, they look at you and say, let's focus on what is so good about this spouse of yours. Good friends who ask good questions. She says, my beloved, verse 10, is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. She begins to open up her mouth and describe her husband in a very complimentary kind of way. It's been said, it's important to point out that this is the isolated physical description of Solomon in the entire song of Solomon. There are three descriptions of her physical beauty, but only one description of his physical traits. This is very rare in ancient poetry. To have a female speak of a man in this kind of way, what it's saying is that she's realizing and and sort of coming to her senses and confessing, I am attracted to this man in every way, sexually, physically, emotionally, spiritually, she unlocks her mouth and she praises her man for the reality of who he is. Their question opened the door for her praise, which would revive their love for one another. She praised him in a few different ways. She says in verse 10, he's distinguished among 10,000. He's unique. There's no one like him. His head is the finest gold. Not that his head was literally gold, but, you know, she's praising his value and perhaps even his mind. His locks, she says, his hair are wavy, black as a raven. He wasn't bald or gray-headed yet, so they're still in their younger years. His eyes are like doves besides streams of water bathed in milk sitting beside a full pool. I could just look at his eyes all day long, she says. 
His cheeks are like beds, verse 13, of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet. He is all together desirable. She praises many specific attributes about her man. She praises his uniqueness. She's praising him for his attractiveness to her. What I want to focus on, however, is simply that she praised him. This is so much respect that is flowing from her mouth towards her husband. And as she says these things, as she praises her spouse, as she says a good word about him, her heart and her love for her husband begins to be revived. So many spouses will spend so much time saying negative things about one another. But if you covenanted with your mouth to speak positively about your spouse, you would watch God do a great and beautiful thing to your heart. At the end of her statement about her husband, she says, this is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. She remembered, I like this man. We are friends together. Now in verse one, they fire back to her and say, where, this is chapter six, verse one, where has your beloved gone? Almost beautiful among women. Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? They try to ask her and find out if she knows. Do you know? Do you know? They're asking, do you know where your husband is? This is beautiful. Once again, they're encouraging her to go to her man. What about your man? They asked originally, but where is he? Go to him. Be with him. Don't be away from him, but run to him. She says in verse 2, My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. So she's basically announcing here that she knows exactly where he is. Now, one interpretation of this phrase is that Solomon is down in his garden, in his actual physical garden, that he's spending time, he's there, he's thinking. But most interpreters think that what she's saying about Solomon is that they are now re-engaged with one another sexually. His garden is her body. He is enjoying her. She is enjoying him. So that tells us they've been reunited. They are enjoying one another now physically. We see that they revived their love partly through her praise toward him. But another way that they revived their love is simply through intimacy. Sometimes intimacy begets more intimacy and is actually healing to the relationship, healing to the marriage. Now in verse four, Solomon begins to speak. He says, you are beautiful as Tirzah, my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Notice here that he opens up his mouth and he begins to in turn praise his bride. 
He says there in verse 4 some beautiful things. Beautiful is Tirzah. In other words, you are impressive to me like an incredible and stately foreign city. You're lovely as Jerusalem, he said. Jerusalem, a highly valuable city to Solomon. He's saying, you're inspiring to me like the city of Jerusalem and awesome as an army with banners. You know, to see an army that way, it's intimidating. It's overwhelming. He was moved by her like he'd be moved if he saw a well-armed army. But what is Solomon doing? He is opening up his mouth and he is speaking. You know, it tells us in Ephesians 4, 26, that we're to be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And Solomon responds so wonderfully to his bride. His words, he knows, are powerful. Now, when we settle conflict, we have to use our words. You have a decision as to how to speak and how to listen. Here are some things that I think are helpful. Never touch one another in anger. Never publicly shame one another or put down one another. Never dig up the past. Never dismiss the other person's feelings with your own sense of logic. Never interrupt when the other person is speaking. Never say negative things about your spouse. Never make it your goal and aim in the conflict to win the conflict. Never put it off. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Never exaggerate. And when you're listening, listen with your whole body. Limit the discussion to the issue at hand. And above all, give the grace of Jesus and the love of Christ, believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things. So Solomon opens up his mouth and he begins to speak to his bride. He compliments her in some incredible ways in verse 5 and following. He says, turn away your eyes from me for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing, all of them bearing twins. Not one of them has lost its young. He had said this about her previously, but he says it again. She still had all of her teeth. He says, verse 7, your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. He is telling her, you, my bride, are irresistible to me. There are, verse 8, 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed, the queens and concubines also, and they praised her. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? This is the word of Solomon about his bride and then likely the word of others about his bride as well. But he says, you're the only one. You're the only one. You're the only one. You're the perfect one. He communicates afresh that she is the only one for him. You set your standard of beauty and it is your spouse and you continue to reset that standard of beauty. That's what Solomon had done. The praise is off the charts for one another at this point. 
Now in verse 11 to the end of the chapter, verse 13, we have some difficult statements that I think have brought confusion upon many. Let's read them together. She says, I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley, to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I was aware, my desire set me among the chariots of my kinsman, a prince. Now, those two statements might be difficult to interpret or translate, but it seems very obvious that something sensual is happening here. She's saying, I went down to seek out that kind of relationship and boom, I was carried away, put on the chariots of my kinsmen. I was carried away. At the least, she's saying, I've been swept off my feet by this man. And perhaps she's alluding to something much more sensual and physical than that. But in verse 13, they say, Return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon you. And it seems as if Solomon then says, why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance between two armies? Now, again, this is a difficult phrase to interpret, but it appears that what Solomon may be saying here is, oh, you want to see the beauty of my bride, but the reality is that what we're doing right now should not be observed by anybody else. You know, when she's got her queenly outfit on and she's in the palace, sure, see her at a festival, observe her beauty. But right now, she's occupied and she's doing things that only I am allowed to see. And so this dance that she's dancing is not a dance that you should be privy to. This is a private moment between a husband and a wife. I think basically you could say that their love had been fully revived. So revived that she becomes sexually free in the presence of her husband, which I think is a beautiful thing to see grow inside of a marriage. So we would expect conflict. We would expect it to come. And remember the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 7. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. We want to work through the conflict so that revival can come in the marriage. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.